Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. There's been a lot going on in the news cycles over the past two years, so the story I'm about to talk about I think got buried in some of the news cycle, but on February 1st of this year, the democratically elected government of Myanmar, which was formerly known as Burma, was deposed by the Tamadaw, Myanmar's military, which seized power. And the government then declared a year-long state of emergency, which prevented all the newly elected representatives from taking their place in the Congress. This overreach caused numerous protests, labor strikes, a military boycott campaign, and a pot-banging movement in which residents in cities hit pots and pans as a symbol for driving away evil to protest what the military had done. On February 28th, during the height of this unrest, the military decided to crack down on the protesters. But there was a moment during this crackdown, which has been described as Myanmar's version of Tiananmen Square, in which a Roman Catholic nun, Sister Anne Rosa Tong, placed herself between the police and the protesters. She pleaded with the police not to beat, arrest, or crack down on the protesters. This action caused the police to retreat for a time, but they came back later in the day, and they ended up killing two people. But Sister Anne went back, and she knelt in front of the police and begged them not to shoot or arrest anyone, even as the tear gas was making it hard for her to breathe. Sister Anne was prepared to die as bullets were whizzing by her. She said, they opened fire and started beating the protesters. I was shocked. And I thought, today is the day I will die. I decided to die. Now, fortunately, Sister Anne did not die, but her willingness to die for others makes her a martyr in will, because that insistence on the dignity of others, because they're made in the image of God, is at the heart of the gospel, and it's at the heart of martyrdom, a topic that we meditate on today during the Feast of St. Stephen. St. Stephen is often called the proto-martyr because he was the first Christian to go all the way to death for his faith. He is now the patron of altar servers and deacons, which covers most of us up here. He's also the patron of headaches, horses, and stoneworkers. But his story is the story of martyrdom, a word which means to give witness to something. It is a special gift for the Christian to be able to give up their lives for their faith. As Psalm 116.15 states, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Stephen shows us the radical reversal which is at the heart of the gospel, the heart of the Christmas story that we've been meditating on these past few days. And therefore, he is a model for us. Now, who was Stephen? Well, the book of Acts tells us that he was one of the seven deacons who were appointed to wait tables, that is, to help the poor, so the disciples could continue in their ministry of word and sacrament. Out of the newly ordained deacons, Stephen is mentioned first and seems to be the most impressive as he was described as full of the Spirit. His ministry was successful. He performed great works among the people, 
which inevitably led to opposition from the Jewish religious establishment. He was dragged before the Sanhedrin, and just like they did with our Lord, his enemies put up false witnesses to lie about him. The charge was blasphemy, claiming that he said Jesus would destroy the temple and change the customs of Moses. Stephen, however, didn't use his trial to launch a traditional defense. Instead, he used his platform to preach a sermon in which he summarized the Old Testament by tracing God's interventions in the history of Israel. God called Abraham out of a land of pagans and made a covenant with him and gave him a son even in his old age. This is the same God who was with Joseph, even when his brothers sold him into slavery. When it seemed like Joseph hit rock bottom, God gave him favor and wisdom in Pharaoh's eyes, which gained him a place of power and eventually reunited him with his family. This is the same God who delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt through Moses. It's the same God who guided Israel in their 40-year journey and dwelt in the tabernacle among his people and was faithful to them, even when they went astray by worshiping idols. But according to Stephen, the Old Testament is even more revolutionary in that it points to a radical distinction between the idolatrous worship of the nations who viewed their gods as contained in idols or temples that they constructed. Rather, the Old Testament, which would have been Stephen's complete and only Bible, testifies to a God who is so radically other than his creation that he cannot possibly be contained in a statue or in a building built by human hands. Yes, God dwelt among his people Israel in a unique way in the tabernacle and the temple, But this was just a foretaste, a preview of how he dwells among us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, as John says in the opening chapter of his gospel, is God tabernacled among us. The refusal to listen to Jesus, then, acts as an indictment of the Jewish leaders. And rather than listen to Stephen's words and warnings, They replicated the behavior of their ancestors who killed the prophets sent to them by God. That was the Old Testament reading today from 2 Chronicles. So the response of the Jewish leaders is in Acts 7.54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. As the crowds prepared to stone him, Stephen was given a vision into heaven where he beheld Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is a curious image because Psalm 110.1, which is what Luke is alluding to, describes the Messiah sitting at the right hand of God, not standing. Some scholars have posited that Luke is simply mistaken in his quotation here. He accidentally says that the Son of Man is standing instead of seated. But I don't think that that gives Luke enough credit, who is a very meticulous author. The fact that Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God has judicial overtones. Jesus is acting as both advocate and judge for Stephen, vindicating his good and faithful servant. There's also a sense in which standing represents hospitality. So we can say Jesus is welcoming Stephen, granting his prayer that his spirit would be received. 
When Stephen reports this vision, the group decides that they've heard enough and they begin hurling the stones at him. Technically, this action was illegal because only Rome had the power of capital punishment, which is why the Jewish leadership was so insistent that Pilate be the one to order the execution of Christ. So this group that stoned Stephen is nothing more than an illegal lynch mob that operated independently, but with the tacit approval of Jewish leadership. And we know they had this tacit approval because the crowds laid their cloaks at the feet of Saul the Pharisee, who would become Paul the Apostle. As they cast their stones at Stephen, he prays a twofold prayer that closely models the summary of the law. The first and great commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. Stephen's love for God is made manifest in the way that he comes all the way to this point, all the way to the brink of death for the gospel. And so it's made manifest in his request that the Lord receive his spirit. The second commandment in the summary of the law is to love thy neighbor as thyself which is evident in Stephen's prayer that God not hold the sins of his executioners against them, a request that models Jesus' cry from the cross for the absolution of those who are crucifying him. And with that beautiful prayer, Stephen died. As I mentioned earlier, a martyr is one who witnesses. Therefore, it's something that we're all called to do. But it can take different forms for different people. Not all of us here are called to be killed for the faith. I'm reminded of Origen, a church father who lived from 184 to 253 during intense persecutions in Alexandria, Egypt. His father was martyred and his mother had to hide his clothes to prevent him from running out into the street to join his father. If Origen had been killed, then we would have been deprived of his writings that shaped the trajectory of Christian theology and engagement with Scripture for centuries. But when someone is called to die for the faith, we call this a baptism by blood, a martyrdom of both will and deed. Dying for one's faith is the bravest and most powerful thing one can do. Tomorrow we celebrate St. John, the apostle and author of the fourth gospel. He wasn't killed for the faith, but we call him a martyr in will instead of deed. Most of us today, at least in the modern West, are called to be this kind of martyr. Certainly dying for the faith is the hardest and most beautiful thing we could do. But just because our calling may not lead to such a violent end doesn't mean the Christian life should be easy or comfortable. In fact... Those of us who are called to be martyrs in will must continually fight against apathy so that we can pour ourselves out as a continual offering to God of our souls and bodies. Whatever shape martyrdom takes, it is the essence of the Christian life because it is an identification with the death of our Lord. In Stephen's story, this identification is obvious not only because he was killed, but also because of the numerous literary connections that are drawn for us between his death and the passion of the, our Lord by St. Luke. For us, that, in, that incorporation into Christ's death occurs at our baptisms, where we're identified with his death, a reality that then must be lived out in all of our lives. 
By virtue of baptism, we have pledged to follow in our Lord's footsteps to, like Stephen, pick up our crosses and follow him. Now, we might ask a question at this juncture, why we celebrate St. Stephen the day after Christmas? Why something that seems so dark and heavy during a season that's supposed to be about light and celebration? The answer is that during this season, we meditate on the Incarnation, the fact that the second person of the Trinity took on a human nature. We reflect on the fact that the small baby in the manger is, in fact, God. Further, we contemplate on the fact that he wasn't born into a family of status and power, of wealth or privilege. He was born in poor and lowly circumstances. And so we can call these 12 days of Christmas the season of the Magnificat. He hath showed the strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seat and hath exalted the humble and meek. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent empty away. I think the modern tendency when we would hear the story of Stephen is to mourn for him, to pity him. His extremism led him to throwing his life away. In modern America, I think we don't like extreme acts of faith. But as St. Augustine pointed out, without Stephen's witness here in Acts 7, it's doubtful that the church would have had the witness of St. Paul later. The gospel works in the circumstances that we least expect it to. It's a catastrophe. It's victory snatched out of the jaws of defeat. One of my favorite novelists is Shusaku Endo, a Japanese Catholic writer. And he wrote a novel called The Samurai, which is set in Japan during 17th century crackdowns against Christianity there. One of the main characters in the book is a Catholic missionary who ends up getting exiled from the country and told not to return. After spending some time in a monastery away from Japan, this missionary comes to the realization that his calling is to minister to the people there in Japan in any way that he can. So he returns to the country, knowing that if he were to be caught there, he would be executed. And sure enough, he gets arrested. And while imprisoned, a Japanese official tries to convince him to renounce his faith to save his life. Listen, don't you think this whole thing is ridiculous? On his way out, the official peered sympathetically into my face. It's almost as though you came to Japan simply so you could be arrested and meaninglessly killed. That's just plain lunacy. It's not lunacy, I replied with a smile. It happened because of the way I am. It's very much like what your Buddhist priest calls karma. Yes, this was my karma. That's how it seems to me. But I believe now that God has made use of my karma to benefit Japan. How do you think your God made use of it to benefit Japan? The official asked, even more puzzled than before. Your question itself is the answer, I asserted. I spoke with determination, not only so that he might understand, but also to reaffirm my own feelings. You have said that what I did was ridiculous. I understand that. But why did I knowingly perform such a ridiculous act? Why did I deliberately do something that seems so lunatic? Why did I come to Japan knowing 
I would die. Think about that sometime. If I can die and leave you and Japan to deal with that question, my life in this world will have had meaning. Martyrdom is incomprehensible to the world, but it's an act that unites heaven and earth. It's an act that provides a witness to the world that it cannot understand unless it embraces the eyes of faith. Just like Stephen, the martyr stands on the precipice with a window into their heavenly destination, which is why verse 2 of hymn number 549 that we sung earlier today is so pertinent. The martyr first, whose eagle eye could pierce beyond the grave, who saw his master in the sky and called on him to save, like him with pardon on his tongue in midst of mortal pain, He prayed for them that did the wrong. Who follows in his train? Let us pray, brothers and sisters, that we would be the ones who would follow in St. Stephen's train, and in so doing, pick up our crosses and follow our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.